Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. Last week was one of those split-screen weeks in our politics with two massive stories playing out on the world stage concurrently and in parallel. On one screen, the war in Ukraine, descending into a deeper and more dismaying miasma of cruelty, brutality, and misery on the orders of Vladimir Putin as televised images and accounts of Russia's depravity in Bukha were enough to induce feelings of both outrage and nausea among any morally sensate person who saw or heard them and caused Ukrainian President Zelensky to declare that Putin had done more than commit war crimes, but was guilty of pursuing a policy of, quote, genocide, unquote. On the other screen, the vastly more uplifting and inspiring picture of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, being confirmed by the United States Senate 53-47 to to replace SCOTUS Justice Stephen Breyer when he retires in June, making Brown Jackson, after 232 years and 115 prior appointments, the first black woman to occupy a seat on the highest court in the land. Where these two stories intersect and overlap, of course, is in the White House, where Joe Biden is grappling on a daily and sometimes hourly basis with keeping NATO and the broader Western alliance unified in its opposition to and pushback against Putin's aggression in Ukraine and where, on Thursday and Friday, he watched the Senate vote and then celebrated the momentous W with KBJ herself. Another point where these stories will sit side by side, of course, is in the history books. No future account of Joe Biden's presidency will not include both. Each story is, as Biden famously said of the passage of the Affordable Care Act, when he was Barack Obama's vice president, a big fucking deal. And it was that very thought of historians one day looking back on last week that led me to think, hey, I know who I want to have on the podcast this week. Not a future historian, but one of the best, most lucid and widely known present practitioners of that noble craft. The endlessly charming, annoyingly prolific, and entirely inimitable Michael Beschloss. I think that in 2020, Joe Biden, because he prevented Donald Trump from being president again, saved American democracy. And I don't usually use language like that, especially in real time. He or whoever runs the Democratic nominee in 2024 may have to do it again. And it may also be at stake this fall. And if the Democrats say this is an election not over inflation, but over whether your children live in a democracy or an autocracy, that's really what the stakes are. For countless Americans, Michael Beschloss is in fact synonymous with the phrase presidential historian. In no small part, that has to do with the 10, count them 10, best-selling books that Beschloss has published in the four decades since he finished his studies. Undergrad at Williams College, grad school at Harvard. All those books almost entirely focused on the presidency. From Kennedy and Roosevelt, The Uneasy Alliance and The Crisis Years, Kennedy and Khrushchev, 1960-63, to to Taking Charge and Reaching for Glory, his groundbreaking twin studies of Lyndon Johnson's secret White House tapes, to The Conquerors, Roosevelt, Truman, and the Destruction of Hitler's Germany, and most recently, and most aptly for part of our discussion here today, Presidents of War, the epic story from 1807 to modern times. But as popular as Beschloss's books have been, his notoriety has been expanded radically and cemented totally by his frequent and always welcome appearances on the TV. 
He is currently NBC News' designated presidential historian and the host of a new Peacock slash MSNBC show called Fireside History with Michael Beschloss, even as he continues his longstanding stint as a commentator on the PBS NewsHour, a gig that made him famous enough to garner the ultimate signifier of cultural ubiquity and impact, being imitated on Saturday Night Live. I wanted to talk with Beschloss about his career, how and why he got into the presidential historian racket, and how the stories he's told and the lessons he's learned about the power presidents wield and the ungodly pressures they face, about how presidential character, its presence and its absence, the strengths and flaws these men bring with them to the job, and how they're magnified by the incomprehensibly high stakes of many of the circumstances they navigate and the decisions that they make, how all that applies to the current occupant of the Oval Office. A little more than a year in, I wanted Beschloss' take on how Biden is doing overall and what his handling of last week's momentous events say about his leadership style and its substance. And as usual, I wanted to spend some time with Beschloss discussing a concern that we share in common, the rising authoritarian impulses on the right, as typified by Donald Trump, and the threat that those impulses pose to American democracy, as illustrated by the January 6th insurrection and its aftermath, all of which has caused both of us to be more fretful about the country's future and say things that affect on television in the past few years than either of us could have ever imagined being or saying in the pre-Trump era. And finally, I wanted to ask Michael Beschloss about the most hilarious one secret White House tape in existence, one that Beschloss himself discovered in which LBJ talks to a man about some pants and the comfort of Johnson's Johnson. If you've never heard the tape I'm talking about, well, this is your lucky day because you're going to get to hear it, along with an hour of sparkling, delightful, and insightful commentary from a man who knows well and truly that while the presidency has changed in countless ways down through the years, one aspect of the job is the same for Joe Biden as it was for Ronald Reagan and LBJ and JFK and FDR and every other occupant of the Oval Office in our history. That for all the perks and the glamour, the adulation and the applause, and for all the deep satisfaction over improving the real lives of real people, at the end of the day, what truly defines the presidency and what determines how history will judge any given president in the moments when your desk is the place where the buck stops in dealing with hell and high water. Yesterday, I returned from our city of Bucha, recently liberated from Russian troops not far from Kiev. So there is not a single crime that they would not commit there. The Russian military searched for and purposefully killed anyone who served our country. They sh killed, shot and killed women outside their houses when they just tried to call someone who is alive. They killed entire families, adults and children, and they tried to burn the bodies. So this is no different from other ter terrorists, such as Daesh, who occupied some territories. And here it is done by a, a member of the United Nations Security Council. So, Michael Beschloss, I always find it odd when we have to listen to uh, Zelensky translated into a woman's voice, but right. that's what was available to us. But I will say, the man has put on a masterclass in political communication. I want to ask you, you know more about history than I do by about a million miles. I've never seen any head of state go from essentially being anonymous no one in the world 99.99 percent of the world did not know who the man was six weeks ago and the tiny sliver that did know him thought he was a joke and now he's a universal icon of democracy yep. and freedom people call him churchillian i think he's like a little bit of churchill a little bit of mandela a little bit of che because he's going to mm -hmm. be on t-shirts forever right so have you ever seen anything like that 
I have, but not in our own time. And, you know, John, you and I talk a lot. Last five years has been pretty discouraging for anyone who loves democracy in the United States or around the world and see people like Viktor Orban and Ms. Le Pen doing very well in France. So if you and I were talking two months ago, you probably would have foreseen what would happen. I would not have. If I had been told that Putin was going to invade Ukraine and someone had told me that more than a month later, the Ukrainians would not only be holding up, but in certain ways winning, Mm. I would have said, you know, I love the idea, love democracy, love the idea that democracy causes people to want to defend their own country and rise up against a militarily stronger country, but I wouldn't have been very optimistic. Part of that is the Ukrainian people, the majority of it, but part of it is also leadership. Think if any of those guys who have been president of Ukraine for the last 30 years had been there instead of Zelensky with his combination of bravery and humor and compassion and humanity and understanding how important it is for the underdog to stand up, I think we would have had a different result. Right. I've been praising Zelensky's communication skills and people say, well, you know, he's actually a hero. I'm like, yeah, I know that. I'm, I just mean you can't become Zelensky. You know, you can't achieve this status without actually being brave and without actually being a hero. You right. can't do that through spin. But right. I don't think you can achieve the ubiquity that he's achieved and the kind of global presence on the, by half of his people without having some serious game in terms of how does a guy like that go and give effective, powerful speeches? Last week it was the U.N., calling out the Russians for war crimes, as we heard just now. But, you know, he's spoken to the United States Congress effectively, the Germans, the Canadians, the Japanese, the British Parliament. Every time he goes, he knocks it out of the park and then he's on TikTok and Twitter. And it just stuns me. I've said it more than once on this podcast, but I think it's that combination. And the thing that I want to ask you is this about this particular thing. It's my contention that another thing has to be present in order to be a hero you have to be presented with the historical circumstances to Absolutely. to perform that way. And you then have to rise to the challenge. And I think that in some ways, without Putin, there is no Zelensky. And I don't mean just because Putin invaded Ukraine, but Putin as a kind of global supervillain creates the context for a global superhero. Absolutely. And look at two years ago when Zelensky was being abused by Donald Trump and played with and denied aid in a serious way and that horrible, perfect phone call. Zelensky, you know, we felt for him, but this did not seem like a commanding leader. But leaders, just as you're saying, John, you know, a great leader you can usually only see in his or her time. If Franklin Roosevelt had been president of the United States in the 1920s, a time when people did not want a strong government, did not want to be active around the world, he probably would have been very frustrating and not been a leader that might have even been reelected. Same thing with Winston Churchill. It took 1940 for people in England to see that Churchill was actually not a fanatic, but a great man. You know, you're a student of many aspects of history. And I know you wrote a book, among the many books you've written, you wrote a book that was called The Conquerors back in 2002, Roosevelt Truman and the Destruction of Hitler's Germany. So you've focused on that. You've also written books that touch on Khrushchev and your many works on Kennedy. You've touched on the Cold War in many, many occasions. You're not a Russian historian, but you've you followed the Soviet Union in those contexts. And I guess I ask you, as you watch Putin now, I am now, for the first time, a little bit confused by, I'm not confused by the fact that he's vicious and that he's committing war crimes. That's not confusing to me. It's like, you're really starting to see this split, which is, you know, people saying, essentially, we're in a stalemate. 
it could be ugly for a long time, but Russia's kind of on its heel and kind of maybe starting to retreat in certain ways. And other people are like looking at Bucha right. and saying, right. the beginning of the war crimes is only just begun. And we're not going to have just Bucha. We're going to have one, three, seven, many Buchas. And we haven't even seen the worst yet. And the real fighting could start a couple weeks from now as both armies kind of are gearing up for actual head-to-head combat in the east part of the country. What do you see on the battlefield there? Where are we in this war from like, how will the histories of this be written? Well, I think everything that you've just said is true. And the other thing is that we don't know how far Putin is going to go. I think of him as a figure less of Russian history than of Soviet history. Right. Very reminiscent of Stalin. This is a guy who obviously has read a lot about Stalin, wants to emulate him in all sorts of ways. But Stalin, in the end, was fairly conservative. You know, it looked in 1948, as you know, in 1949, as if Stalin and the Red Army were going to roll over Europe. He didn't do it because he knew that was not in the interest of his country. In Putin's case, there are rumors that he's got serious illness, may not even have long to live, according to some unverifiable rumors. But even if that is not true, he shows all the signs of autocracy, which is that He's been sheltered for 20 years. He's been surrounded by yes people. He obviously did not know that this would be dangerous for the Russians to march into Ukraine. And all I'm saying is, as much as we would fear a Stalin or a Nikita Khrushchev, at least they were surrounded by people who gave them not bad information and told them what was in their interest. This, looking in retrospect, five weeks later, the invasion of Ukraine was so contrary to Putin's interests that you begin to wonder how in touch he really is. Let's play a little bit of Joe Biden here calling for a war crimes trial, not just calling Putin a war criminal, which he's done before, and that could have been right. a rhetorical flourish, but he's like saying, this man should be put on trial. I want to hear Joe Biden talk about that, and we'll start to talk about how Biden's handling this on the other side. You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened to Ruka. He is a war criminal. But we have to gather the information. We have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue the fight. And we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Ruka is outrageous. And everyone's seen it. So there's Biden. He's been criticized by some. The speech in Warsaw, which ended with that, right. still in dispute, ad-libs, not ad-libs, not in the text, but maybe not ad-libs, maybe something by Pan to say all along. That's what he insists, you know, the notion right. of this man cannot stay in power. There's a foreign policy establishment that says, and I, I don't think they sound unreasonable when they say, President of the United States at a moment like this, the biggest ground conflict in Western Europe since World War II against a nuclear armed opponent in, in Putin should not be freelancing, should not be ad-libbing, should be sticking to the script. And I hear that and I have some sympathy for that. Discipline's a good thing. There's also just an argument for moral clarity, right? And George W. Bush, I looked into Putin's eyes and I saw his soul and Barack Obama, you know, I, you know, I told him to cut it out when he interfered with our election in 2016. Might be flexible after re-election. Right. And then Trump, of course, we won't even talk about that. So the last three presidents gave license to Putin, never spoke to him or about him the way that Joe Biden is. And there's something I find bracing and kind of clarifying to hear Joe Biden just basically saying what most people think, which is this guy should not be running Russia. He's a danger to the world and he's a war criminal. We should try him. Totally agree with you. And a lot of the people who have been complaining particularly on Fox News and elsewhere about the fact that Joe Biden said this at the end of that speech, were were they in 1983 when 
Ronald Reagan was talking to religious broadcasters in Florida and said that the Soviet Union was an evil empire. Right. You know, you have people who were dissidents at the time who were in jail. They heard about what Reagan had said and they said, thank God, finally, a Western leader is seeing this for what it is and drawing this as a struggle between good and evil. Just assess for me Biden's performance in the war. Well, if I were 50 years from now going back to 2022 and you asked me what I would want in an American president, I would want two things. Number one, an American president who understands the gravity of the issues, the importance of NATO, the importance of helping the Ukrainians to defend democracy, and at the same time, some historical memory of when this had happened before. You know, we hear a lot of ageist stuff about, isn't it terrible that Joe Biden is so old? Be nice to have someone younger. In certain ways, maybe that's true if you've got an ideal president. But Joe Biden was born early in World War II. His earliest political memories are exactly of the period of post-World War II world where war crimes trial was taking place in Nuremberg. That was something that he probably knew about as a young child. And he's been in national life for 50 years. If there was someone designed to put NATO together and make sure that this was an alliance that would stand up to the Russians, I would take Joe Biden. He's been doing this for a very long time. Yeah. And I find it interesting. I mean, look, there's a couple things to say about the fact that, you know, NATO is hung together so far. And, right. and Putin did not think they would. A lot of people didn't think that NATO would hang together. A lot of people thought, you know, it would splinter. Has not. I don't think Joe Biden's solely responsible for that, but he deserves some amount of the credit. World leaders think he's doing a good job. And even Republicans, when they criticize him, you know that the guy's doing okay. When most Republicans can muster is, he should have done this or that a little faster. I wish right. he'd send a few more jets a little quicker. It's not like he's leading from behind. He's fucking this all up. It's more just like, ah, we like what he's doing, but I got to do more and he got it faster. I feel like, you know, that there is in fact a pretty broad consensus that he's doing a pretty good job. I think, John, and I always rely on you to tell me how the zeitgeist has changed. And I would say in the last five or six weeks in this country, in the United States, the zeitgeist has changed. Yeah. A month and a half ago, in a lot of circles, it was tolerable to say what's the difference between us and Russia, between an American president and Vladimir Putin. Five weeks later, that is not acceptable to be said anymore. And I right. think in terms of Donald Trump, I don't want to leap ahead, but here we're in a situation where people who are supporting Donald Trump have to support someone who said that the invasion of Ukraine was an act of genius yeah. and Vladimir Putin is brilliant and savvy. Aside from anything else you may like about Donald Trump, those of you who support him, is that the kind of person you want in charge of our national security? Right. And in serious times, people who are fools tend to get flushed out more than usual, although Trump was our president right. for four years. And someone who may still be in bed with the Russians and Putin and the oligarchs in ways that we do not know. Yes. And it is interesting. I mean, there are still Republican members of the House who are still not standing up four square with NATO. There's still a bunch of things to be worried about. But there was definitely a scampering away from the pro-Putin rhetoric of Trump and Pompeo and Rudy Giuliani early, right before the war, there was some crazy right. shit that got said. And a lot of the mainstream Republicans were like, ah, no, 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 that's, I'm sorry, we're not, we're not going down that path with you. We're going to actually kind of stick with Joe Biden. I know you've written this before we, and, and talked about this over the course of your career a lot. And I've always agreed with you about it, which is that 
you know, presidential communication is the subject that we all focus on. They give big speeches where you do theater criticism of them. They're the things that last in some ways, especially in our world now that what we get to see. And we go back and look at presidents by their old, their state of the state. We'll do some of that on the show. But you've said over and over again, in the end, if you get the policy right and you are leading on substance in the right way, everyone will forgive your lack of communicative skills. If you get the policy wrong and you're a brilliant communicator, that's not going to help you very much. And it feels kind of like that's where we are right now with Biden. He's not a great communicator. He's not a great communicator. He's not. No, he's not. He seems to be he seems to be getting it right. I think he is. And one thing that I think really proves exactly what you're saying, John, is Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s was considered great general, but this was sort of a retirement job in the White House. He wasn't doing much and he wasn't doing the right thing and couldn't put a sentence together in a press conference, which oftentimes he could not. But in retrospect, you look at the policies, he kept down defense spending. He kept us from getting into a hot war with the Russians, which might have happened with other people. And he kept us out of Vietnam when there was a big chance of going in in 1956. So yes, Eisenhower probably did not give a speech as president that you or I could even quote from, but I will certainly on many of these issues take him as president. But here's the thing. We just got done saying that by and large, Biden is performing well in this very high pressure, high stress situation on this war. It's also the case that the economy, if you hold inflation, if you don't talk about inflation, which is obviously a big thing, and I'm not saying it's not important, I'm just saying of course, 400,000 jobs a month for 11 straight months. Haven't done that since the 1930s. Wages are rising. COVID is, you know, I know in Washington, because people decided to go to the gridiron and tongue kiss each other, there's a big outbreak down there. I, I don't like did, that. Did not include me. I okay. didn't tongue kiss okay. anyone. Okay. Well, at least they'll, they'll, <laughs> since they don't like cameras in there, you'll be able to, you might be able to get away with that lie. Right. No, no evidence. No evidence. Correct. So there's, and it's, it's flaring up a little bit, but by and large, life is kind of more normal all over America with respect to COVID than it has been in a long time. Sure. And so economy, COVID, a big giant foreign policy test. He just got this historic Supreme Court nominee, so we'll talk about that more later in the podcast. How can a guy who is on the just objective metrics is performing not A+, plus, but performing that solidly, how's that guy's approval rating just dropping almost every week and not getting any political credit for any of it as far as I can see? I think if I were to look at this as an story, and I probably would go back to last summer with Afghanistan, you can argue round or flat whether Joe Biden did the right thing. But I think one thing that his people did not foresee was that if he took this position on Afghanistan, which is get out, don't invest anymore, which was a brave position because there would be a lot of people who wouldn't like it. And any effort to disengage such as the one we took was going to look very ugly and horrible. And a lot of people were going to suffer. I think the people around him did not understand how much a lot of Americans who were watching him as a new president would extrapolate and say, you know, what he did on Afghanistan is symbolic of everything else he does as president. Right. And so as a result, I think this is like putting a lead weight on his back doesn't last forever. And I think one thing that is in his favor and the Democrats favor is that people's attention spans these days are so short. I just mentioned the word Afghanistan. Right. When was the last time we talked about that? It feels like it happened like 40 years ago. Right. Yeah, it was interesting. I was talking to some a senior Obama person we're talking about the midterms that's coming up. And it doesn't take any kind of historical knowledge to know that in a president's first term, the president's party tends to suffer in those for midterms. That's just a, a historical truism. Almost always. Almost always. 
And so, you know, those are the historical factors. You've got the country still coming out of this pandemic, the economy, you have the inflation problem. You still have people worried about COVID out there. You know, there's a lot of headwinds going on. But, you know, you hear Democrats say, you know, it's not too late. We got seven more months. We can turn it around. And I've just never really seen that. And I, this Obama person I was talking to, they said when Scott Brown won that special election in Massachusetts in January 2010, right. we knew from that moment that we were going to lose the House. And Democrats had a much larger margin in 2010 than they do now. And they definitely said it. Obama said it's people in the Oval Office after the ACA passed in March of 2010. He said, I'm glad we got this done, but we're going to pay the price in November. So like the people who know usually are like, "Eh, yeah, there's seven more months, but we're kind of doomed in the midterms. Do you think that that is where we are now? Or do you think that the political laws of physics have changed in a way because of Trump and other things and the specter of democracy on the ballot that maybe the old laws don't apply anymore and that so much can change. The thing you said now, which is that's a short memory thing and the stakes being so high that some of those old laws may no longer apply and that Democrats aren't doomed to lose the House of Representatives the way they were in 2010, the way they were in 1994, when you could see the writing on the wall many months in advance. That's exactly what I think your option number two, which is that What happened in 2010 was 12 years ago, but it could be like Pompeii in terms of how it (laughs) applies to our current political climate. Look at the last five years. Look at how quickly the public's attention was riveted to things that we didn't even expect. The most horrible example, of course, the pandemic in February of 2020. Who could have imagined what we were thinking about in March of 2020 after the pandemic took hold? And not just pandemics, but things happen. So between now and November, I think is a lifetime. And the other thing I would say is that even if the Democrats should lose the midterms, we've now been through a couple of decades where presidents lose the midterm and then they win re-election. That happened with Clinton, happened with George W. Bush, happened with Barack Obama. You know better than I that if you and I were talking to an Obama person in the middle of 2010, as Barack Obama was saying when he was with Joe Biden at the White House you yeah. know, a little while ago, when he went over to observe the 12th anniversary of ACA, there was a feeling among the Obama people, I talked to them, you talked to a lot more of them, I'm sure at the time, they wanted reassurance that the fact that they were going to lose the midterms did not necessarily mean that Barack Obama was going to lose re-election. It was really interesting when we saw him at the White House a little while ago. He was basically saying for a while, I thought I was going to lose a second term. Yeah, that I know is 100% true. We are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Michael Beschloss here on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. So to me, one of the fascinating things about the situation of Russia-Ukraine is it does kind of provide an interesting transition into the Beschloss story because- For us. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> here's a young man named Beschloss born in Illinois, in Chicago, right? You're Chicagoan, you were born Absolutely. there? Absolutely. At boarding Chicago. In the year of 1955, double nickels. Prehistoric. And seven years later, in October of 1962, a crisis occurs that is like- The thing that everybody's comparing this to now, there are many people who say, hey, you know what? We're the closest to nuclear war that we've been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. I've heard that a hundred times on television. And 
the young Michael Beschloss hears John Kennedy give a speech. I'm certain I've read you say, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, this is like the first political speech you really remember from right. your childhood. So let's listen to a little bit of John F. Kennedy here in October, sure. telling the country that there are nuclear missiles 90 miles away in Cuba. My fellow citizens, let no one doubt that this is a difficult and dangerous effort on which we have set out. But the greatest danger of all would be to do nothing. The path we have chosen for the present is full of hazards, but it is the one most consistent with our character and courage as a nation and our commitments around the world. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere, and we hope around the world. Were you, as a seven-year-old, were you scared shitless by the Cuban Missile Crisis? Were you, were your fa- was your family? Yeah, I sure was scared shitless. I was living in a suburb called Flossmoor, which was and is about 30 miles outside of Chicago, and I was nearly seven years old when I heard that. I guess six years old, almost seven. Yeah, almost seven. And what it reminded me of, John, you know, you're... Wisconsin and Michigan ancestors went through this. You probably did not growing up in luxury in L.A. as you did. <laughs> I'm saying that yeah, joke. That's all right. It's all right. Uh, Relatives to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, my mother grew up in an iron mining town. We, we definitely lived in, okay. in luxury compared to that, to luxury of suburban San Fernando Valley. Earthquakes, but no tornadoes. Correct. Right? Correct. But if you grew up around Chicago or in Michigan or Wisconsin, a number of times a summer, you'd go through some really dangerous tornadoes. You'd go down the cellar. And for a a little kid, that was terrifying. And you'd come upstairs wondering if your house would still be there. And in some cases, it was not. So when I was watching Kennedy's speech, I wish I could tell you, John, that I knew exactly what he meant by offensive missiles and the technical terms. Obviously, I had no idea. But it basically sounded to me like this was going to be a tornado warning that lasted more than one night, which was the usual thing, but might last for a long time. The most telling thing in that speech, if you watch it, was not in the excerpt that you played, is Kennedy says, this could take many months. Right. Because he thought that the Soviets would refuse to pull out the missiles and this would be a standoff that would last for a very long time. That's a direct parallel to Ukraine. And historically, you know, people say, why read history? You know, I don't say it because I'm in that business, but (laughs) a lot of people who don't, unlike, you know, you read history, but people who don't might say that. In Kennedy's case, he said, it was very important that just before the missile crisis, I read a wonderful book called Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August, which you have probably, John, read more than once. And the lesson of The Guns of August is... World War I, this tragic war, happened largely because of accidents, miscommunications. And so Kennedy, knowing that lesson from just having read the book, at the beginning of the missile crisis, he says to his people, I want to be apprised of any troop movement that gets near the Soviet border. I want to know where our planes are flying. I want to know what some idiot, you know, two levels down in the Pentagon is saying in case someone makes a warlike statement that might accidentally convince Khrushchev that we're about to try a preemptive attack against the Kremlin. And we now know in retrospect that at least on one occasion, there was an American plane that accidentally flew right over the Soviet border. And had Kennedy not been 
equipped to quickly send a message to the Kremlin saying, this is an accident. This is not the spearhead right. of our nuclear attack <laughs> against you. Yeah. We could have had a nuclear war that could have led to 60 or 70 million people being killed. When you hear people on television say, or in the newspaper, been quoted in the New York Times, people with credentials saying that we are either at the most precarious position relative to the use of nuclear weapons since the Cuban Missile Crisis, or in some say even more precarious than that. When you hear that, do you think, yes, that's what it feels like right now? Or do you think, without in any way downplaying, Putin has a lot of nuclear weapons, he might decide to nuke Kiev tomorrow, and it would be a very complicated situation if he nuked a non-NATO country right. like Ukraine, and it'd be very bad and could escalate very quickly. When you hear that, having lived through it, do you think, I don't know, man, it doesn't feel the way it felt like in America in 1962 when people were scared shitless, not just you as a seven-year-old, but you know, a lot of people of all ages were like waiting for the air raid sirens to turn, and the country was on the edge of its seat every night. It doesn't feel like that here now to me. Well, I think it should, and I think people should not necessarily be scared shitless, but know what the dangers are here. You know, we had Khrushchev in 1962, who in retrospect, people didn't quite know it at the time, was, you know, again, a pretty cautious leader who knew what nuclear war would mean, and we now know took precautions to make sure that that was less likely than it looked at the time. If I were relying on a leader in Moscow to keep us away from nuclear war, I would take Nikita Khrushchev over Vladimir Putin in a heartbeat, because Putin, I think, has more control over the Russian government than Khrushchev did in 1962, with sure. more of a collective leadership. And also, I think Khrushchev was, a, I never thought I would live to say this about Khrushchev, a more sensitive, insane person than Putin. Yes, you probably would say that about Brezhnev. For sure. And, and all those guys who we've all forgotten, guys like Yuri Andropov, who are like, who is that guy? You know, Chernyenko, there's people who, right. who were in the Soviet Union, don't know who they were. Horrible people, but they kept us out of nuclear war. I think that that's fair. And I mean, I'm not trying to say people shouldn't be concerned about what's going on on now. And obviously, the one thing, the Russian nuclear warheads are not 90 miles away in Cuba. And so it's right. natural that there's a different kind of vibration about it. Sure. The other thing that you've commented on in the past, I'm curious about that, whether you're interested in this fact, it's like, you know, for a long time, our presidents in political terms, I would say certainly from Kennedy onward, and maybe even earlier from the time we dropped an atomic bomb. But for many decades, the chief qualification for like ready to be president in a presidential campaign was who is the person who is most equipped to keep us out of a nuclear war? And if that meant strength, it meant strength. Nobody really knew what that meant, but nuclear war hovered over everything. And so the question of who's the strongest, the most sensible, the one who's going to project strength if necessary, to negotiate if necessary, whatever, the first qualification for any presidential candidate was that. It's such a strange thing that in this period post-Soviet Union, that just kind of went away, but now it's suddenly back in this very big way. Totally right. It's, it's the reason why George H.W. Bush did not get the credit he deserved for ending the Cold War, not single-handedly, but with Gorbachev and with others in 1991 without firing a shot. Americans didn't care in 1992 because they figured, you know, Soviet Union is gone, Cold War is over, don't have to worry about that. I think, interestingly, John, one thing that historians will begin to say is that in the 1990s, our leaders led us astray in essentially regarding the problem of Russia and the Soviet Union as settled. They've got a democracy now. We don't have to worry about that. Let's think about domestic things like subprime mortgages and other domestic issues and foreign policy. There isn't too much 
mileage for a presidential candidate in 1992 or 1996. And again, what historians do, as you well know, is we look back at an earlier time and say, what did we do wrong? And I'm almost ready to say after the last five weeks, we should have made a much bigger effort in the 1990s to make sure that Russian democracy succeeded. Because if Russian democracy by the end of the 1990s winds up with Vladimir Putin, who from the beginning we now know was determined to try to restore the Soviet Union and behave the way that Stalin did and to some extent Khrushchev did, why didn't we do more to avert that? Yes. And I guess I wonder whether you think, I mean, I, I'm not very big on speculation or futurology, but whether, I mean, a strong leader, you know, is obviously one of those characteristics that matters a lot in presidential campaigns, and presidential sure. elections, you know, do you project strength, right? I mean, foreign policy has been a little bit of a, I mean, accepting the war on terror and post 9-11 for a lot of that period, the Clinton years, it was not a factor really in the 92 election. It was not really a factor. It really wasn't a factor in the 96 election. It was not a real factor in the Obama-McCain election. In the Obama-Romney election, Romney tried to make it an issue. It was not really in the, in the Trump-Clinton or in this last election. Do you imagine that that one of the lasting effects of this war, especially if it drags on for a long time, is this going to put front and center the question of foreign policy in the 2024 presidential election? Totally do. For four years, I never slept a sound night because Donald Trump was in charge of nuclear weapons. I think there are probably constraints on a president who wants to use those illegitimately, but I'm not sure there are. And especially after January 6th, 2021, if you had a president who was desperate to hold on to office and thinking, what are all the things that I can resort to? One of the things I was really worried about was Donald Trump and nuclear weapons, whether I was right or wrong. I think in the wake of this nuclear crisis over Ukraine and the war of democracy in in Ukraine that most Americans, I think, and even the preponderance of our political class are winding up on the right side of, I think Americans will say, yes, whoever is president after 2024 must be a strong person, but also has to be a rational person so that we don't live through a moment like this again. And as far as Donald Trump is concerned, if the zeitgeist is changing, I dare to think that perhaps people who like Trump will say, I may agree with certain things that he stands for, but you know, being in bed with Putin and being against Ukraine, at least at the beginning of this, does not cut it anymore. And I need someone who's more living in the real world and able to defend our children. Well, you know, when I was in graduate school in 1988, 89, 90, it was right at the end of this period. And, you know, this there was were, the Kennedy School, wasn't it? That is correct. And you will remember people like, or, like you're, you're supposed to call it the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, now. I'm no, sorry. The H bomb always just ruins every conversation, right. as you know, <laughs> as you know, there are a lot of people as soon as you use that word. It's like, oh, <laughs> but in those days, you know, the stars of that place were Graham Allison and Absolutely. Joe Nye and Al Carnicell. And they were like the bombs and bullets guys, sure. uh, Tom Schelling and Game Theory, which is all about nuclear nuclear weapons, basically. It was all basically focused on Soviet Union, nuclear war. And in the historical context, it was about the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, I right. don't know if there's anything in modern history, Michael, that's been written about more by more historians from more different angles than the Cuban Missile Crisis. And our understanding of it, it changed over time, right? It's like the initial thing was Kennedy was tough and he stared down Khrushchev. That was the lesson for a lot of people, right? And over time, a different perception took hold. What's the historical consensus now after revision, re-revision, and everything we know from all of the archives and all the tapes and everything everybody studied, what do we now believe is Kennedy's chief virtue in having 
brought that crisis to successful conclusion, i.e. successful as in no nuclear war? The fact that Kennedy thought the way that you and I would think now in 2022. Let's say that the Cuban Missile Crisis had gone into nuclear war. That would have been 60 million people killed because there's some missiles in Cuba, which is pretty ridiculous because we had missiles going on submarines and Robert McNamara, the defense secretary, whom I detest a lot of things about, but this one he was right about, he said to Kennedy, even during the Cuban Missile Crisis, missiles in Cuba are a domestic political problem for you because people might be angry at you. They do not really put America in any greater danger than we were in before. And so if Kennedy had gone to war over a danger that really didn't exist, 60 million people, including our families, might have died for nothing. Right. And we all know that there are all the back channels and non-trade trade for whatever the missiles were in Turkey. And there's right. all this stuff that kind of like we were making deals. We weren't doing the kind of stare down, the kind of bellicosity that a lot of people thought at the time carried Kennedy forward. And here's the thing. I pointed out that that was the first speech you heard. You know, for all the children out there in podcast land, all the kids listening and who might not know this, including the younger kids who work on this podcast, uh, there was a bit of a transformation of Kennedy in his brief presidency from a cold warrior. You know, that speech we played, he's still a cold warrior, right? But a year later, Kennedy gives what became really one of his most famous speeches, the American University speech, which focuses right. on peace. And that speech, I want to play a little bit of it as, as I say, a history lesson for our younger listeners. Not just the most famous in some ways, but maybe arguably, Michael, right? The greatest Kennedy speech? I think I think it is the greatest. I was going to ask you to rate it. Let's play JFK at American University in June of 1963. There's a commencement speech now remembered defining for him. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. Tip of the hat there to Ted Sorensen, Kennedy speechwriter. That's like a classic of the Sorensen genre. I, I like the peace of the grave, security of the slave. It's right. Like, and also a, a little hat tip to Bill, Bishop Fulton Sheen, who yeah. wrote a famous book at the time called Life is Worth Living. So yeah. Kennedy was covering every base. But that's like his peacenik speech, right? And I can't help but think, and you'll tell me whether I'm right about this, because you know, again, a hundred times more than me, the Kennedy we hear in June of 63, not long before he's going to be dead. Right is a different man than the Kennedy of a year earlier. And I think that it's right to say that the Cuban Missile Crisis changed him, and it's the beginning of the journey for him towards that speech is what happened a year earlier in 62. I think that's part of it, but Kennedy was ultimately a very political man and very aware of the fact that he had won the 1960 election by, what, 100,000 popular votes, and yeah. even those were questioned in Texas and Illinois a conservative majority in Congress. So he had to show that he, as a young person without serious foreign policy experience, could defend the country as well as Eisenhower did. So the result was in the summer of 1961, when Nikita Khrushchev was threatening to take over Berlin, 
Kennedy initiated the largest defense buildup up until that time in human history. And he did that because he felt politically weak. What he didn't know was that that would cause Khrushchev to respond a year later by putting missiles in Cuba. So when I wrote this book about the Cuban Missile Crisis and Kennedy and the Cold War in 1991, I think I was about 34 when I wrote it, I almost had my head handed to me because I said Kennedy did a great job of solving the Cuban Missile Crisis when it happened, but he also caused it because if he had not done this big defense buildup and also shown signs that the United States was going to invade Cuba and topple Castro, which we were not, without those two things, Khrushchev would not have put missiles in Cuba. There were a lot of people when that book came out who said, how dare you criticize Kennedy for doing this? But my point is that, just as you say, John, Kennedy was seen by the American public, and largely rightfully, as so strong on the Cuban Missile Crisis as having defeated Khrushchev, right. that gave him the political strength six months later to give the speech at American University, and at the same time, pursue a partial test ban treaty, which he achieved in two months. Right. And, you know, I'll say this last thing about Kennedy, right? Because Kennedy, now we go as we step back into the Wayback Machine, we go back to, to the Beschloss childhood, right? So Beschloss, having heard Kennedy give the Cuban Missile Crisis speech, he uh, is impressed, apparently, because not that long thereafter, as an eight-year-old, Beschloss decides to write a letter to <laughs> President Lyndon Johnson, where he says, to the president, LBJ here, this is December of 1963, not long after Kennedy was assassinated. He says to Johnson, ask him whether he could, quote, get some large carving firm to carve his, meaning Kennedy's head, into the Mount Rushmore Memorial of South Dakota. Amazingly, Johnson's secretary writes back to Beschloss, not a very substantive letter because God knows if LBJ had heard you praising Kennedy that way, he would have, he wanted to fire he, a missile at your house. He would have had my taxes investigated or something. Like, like nuke Chicago, right. but you get this letter back <laughs> And according to at least one profile, your pals at the skating rink mock you and say, it's an obvious forgery, right? So now you're connected in a way to Lyndon Johnson, which yeah. is a weird present to be connected to because the man is one of the great complex figures in our American political Absolutely. history. You were at least not as nutty as Robert Caro to devote like basically <laughs> half a life to writing 5,000 page books about the man, but you did do two, right? You've yep. done two on the Johnson tapes. That's a lot of your life. Michael Beschloss. Yep. The first one's in 1997. It's called Taking Charge of the, White, the Johnson White House Tapes, 1963 and 64. Then the Reaching for Glory, Lyndon Johnson's Secret White House Tapes, 64 and 65. There's one piece of tape I'm going to play, but first I want to ask you, what do you think you learn? You listen to all that tape. There's been so much done on the Nixon tapes. You know, sure. My friend Kurt Anderson did a great podcast series about the Nixon tapes and listening right. to what we learned about Nixon in Vietnam. What do you think, just from, there's a lot, I get a lot of scholarship on LBJ, but listening to all of those, how many hours was it? About 700. 700 Which hours. I listened to all of them more than once. Right. And it's the question that you always ask about any president, John. I think you would agree with this. May give great speeches, but does he really mean it? Yeah. So Johnson goes to Congress in 65 and says, I want voting rights. We shall overcome. Uh, but you wonder what he's saying, you know, behind Privately. the scenes. Sure. And he's, you know, he's against poverty, but does he really care about it? And the most reassuring thing about LBJ was that in private, he was probably more radical about those things than he was in public. So, you know, you always want to see someone with the bark off. One other thing, Dwight Eisenhower in private probably was not too different with his aides than he was in public. LBJ, I remember as a kid, you're too young for this. 
Did you ever remember that the name Clutch Cargo no. was a cartoon? It was a face and only the mouth moved. <laughs> yeah. And that's what Johnson looked like to me. He gave these boring speeches because he thought that was statesmanlike. Yeah. In private, you know, he doesn't say an uninteresting thing. He says, for instance, you know, that guy is so stupid, he can't find his ash with both hands, you know, yeah, things right. like that, yeah. which, you know, I understood that coming from Chicago, but some of the Texas expressions I did not. Michael Beschloss will never uh, want to play favorites among his books. There are 10 of them. I will say to anybody who's never read a book by Michael, Michael Beschloss, the Johnson books, the Kennedy books, incredibly gripping. And these Johnson tapes books, I mean, he's as fascinating a character and as tragic a character as any president of our lifetime. And, you know, we see him, you know, we get to presidents of war. Every one of these presidents is kind of shaped by war. That's why it's so odd that we got these presidents in the 21st century who have not really been touched by war, but all of them are shaped by it. And of course, for Johnson, the Vietnam War is the thing that ultimately doesn't just in some ways destroy his presidency, but, you know, drives him out of office. He decides not to run again in 68, as we all mm -hmm. know. And I think he was, he was, I believe I'm right, tortured by it. Oh, completely. Pretty much his entire life, right? After he left office. Yes. And I love Johnson in many ways, love Medicare, love civil rights as you do, voting rights, education, aid, did a lot of great things. Yeah. But remember I was talking about whether a president says the same thing in public as in private? Yeah. In February of 65, in public, not long before you were born, he was saying to the young soldiers going off to Vietnam, go and nail the coon skin to the wall. Yeah. You know, I want you to get a victory. But what yeah. was he saying in private on these tapes? And yeah. I was the first one to get to listen to a lot of these. So for a historian to get to listen to 700 hours that no one else has listened to and have a whole new view of LBJ, that's about as exciting as it gets. But what is he telling McNamara's defense secretary? Yeah. Just as he's telling the soldiers, I want a victory, in private he's saying to McNamara, I can't think of anything worse than losing the Vietnam War, right. and I do not see any way that we can win. Right. And I love Lyndon Johnson, but just about the worst thing that a president of the United States can do is send a young American into harm's way to possibly lose his or her life, claiming that you're out for victory at the same time that even at the beginning of the war, you think you're going to lose it. So 700 hours of LBJ, and you listen to all of it. I asked you a ridiculous question, which is, hey, you listen to 700 hours. What did you learn about LBJ? It's like, uh, 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 you know, it's kind of a dumbass question to ask. My wife said my language got a lot worse while I was listening to it. Here's the one thing I will say for history is that of those 700 hours of tape, there's one tape that stands above all the others, and Michael knows exactly what I'm going to play. I'm going to play it right now. LBJ, who makes the phone call to the head of Hagar Slacks. Hagar Slacks. I actually found that one. Yes, I know you did. I wanted to give you credit because right, it's one of, it is one of the greatest things that exists on the internet. Anybody who wants to hear the whole thing should go and listen to it. You can find it on it's YouTube. Just type in LBJ pants. You'll find it. But we'll play just a little bit of it here so you can hear what a president sounds like when he's talking about, well, things we shouldn't talk about. You all made me some real lightweight slacks. Uh, uh, he just made up on his own, sent to me three or four months ago. It's a kind of a light brown and a light green, rather soft green and soft brown. Now I need about six pairs for summer wear. Make the pockets at least an inch longer. Money, My money and my knife, everything fall out. Now another thing, the crotch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me an inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. They're just like riding a 
wire fence. Leave me. Uh, you never do have much margin there. But see if you can't leave me about an inch from the, where the zipper ends, uh, round uh, under my back to my bunghole. So I can let it out there if I need to. You know, it's a funny tape when a man who's listened to 700 Hours, who found it, discovered it, and, and you still can't resist laughing at, A, a president who's referring to the place where his nuts hang, his bunghole, and the belch. The, belch, the belch. the belch is like the best part of the whole thing because it's the most LBJ of all of it. Yeah, it is. But, you know, when I was listening to these tapes, as I say, I was about the first outside person to listen to them. And I was asking myself, are these tapes that LBJ sort of manipulated to show what a noble statesman he was, or are there going to be things that Johnson would be horrified for us to hear at a later time? And Johnson, who was always worried in public about dignity, the last thing on earth he'd ever want is the belching and using the word nuts and bunghole. And this was a big part of my life because after that book came out, it was in the fall of 97, Lady Bird Johnson, whom I got to know very well, mm. I saw her and I said, were you happy with the way the book came out? And she said, well, I could have lived without seeing you on TV playing the Hagar Slacks tape. Yeah. I would have lived more happily. But you should know, Michael, that tape is my grandchildren's favorite. So go figure. Uh, I think maybe the, the reference to the tightness around the nuts, maybe. Yeah. And the other thing is that about a month after that, I got a letter from old Mr. Hagar, who's still alive in Dallas, <laughs> Come on. offering me free pair of custom-made Hagar slacks. So who says there, there are no perks in this business? And with plenty of room, I'm sure. Uh, I will not will not go into detail. Plenty of room in the crotch. I don't want anything to, to ride you like a wire fence. Right. Uh, I don't want my knife and money to fall out. We're going to take one more break, and we'll be back with more Michael Beschloss on Hell and High Water. And we are back with the one and only Michael Beschloss on Hell and High Water. From the ridiculous to the sublime, but there is a connection. LBJ, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, Great Society, a guy from Texas who you would not have thought would achieve for a period of time the most important things, I think still in some ways, the most important legislative victories that African-Americans in this country have ever achieved. In some ways, what happened last week when Ketanji Brown-Jackson made it to the Supreme Court, is in some ways one of the termini, I will say, using proper Latin, of that journey. Let's hear her last Friday at the White House celebrating her victory. She doesn't mention Lyndon Johnson, but she makes a point about the fact that she is beginning of one big story, but the in a way, the end of another story. It's been a long time coming. Here she is talking about the context in which her successful nomination exists. It has taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to be selected to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. But we've made it. (laughs) We've made it, all of us, all of us. She later quoted Maya Angelou and said that that she was the dream and the hope of the slave. I'm amazed in a way by this, that Republican senators had ideological or jurisprudential disagreements with her and decided to vote against her. They're entitled to that and it's fine. 
But the fact that they walked out of the chamber and aren't enough lovers of America and appreciators of American history and people who were rooting for racial progress that they wouldn't at least stand there and soak up a moment that will be written about in history books forever. I find it just kind of astonishing in the same way, you know, millions of people vote against Barack Obama, but a lot of them still on election night when he was in Grand Park in 2008, they looked at it and said, I feel good about my country, even if I was for John McCain. Republican senators apparently walked out. It's kind of incredible. It was disgusting. And Lindsey Graham could not be bothered to wear a tie. You can imagine that that was not by accident on the Senate floor to show his contempt for the historical moment. And who above all should have been their model should have been John McCain on election night, as you have written, 2008, who had just been defeated by Barack Obama. He'd wanted to be president for decades, yet goes out there and has the stature and dignity and class to say, Barack Obama will be my president too. And I understand what an important moment it is for Americans to elect the first African-American president. One thing that has really stuck with me during those hearings was you're and my good friend, Joy Reid was on TV, I think the night of one of those days of those hearings, and said that those Republican senators treated her like a black shopper that was being followed through a store. Right. And she was absolutely right. And here we are in 22. Is this what we've come to? Look, the Supreme Court hearings have become circuses of the worst, the most disgusting kind. It makes me crazy when people say this is all the legacy. And, And remember when Scalia was nominated confirmed by 98 to nothing. Yes. That yes. was not even 40 years ago. No. And and look, even, you know, when people say that, you know, the Bork hearing started all this, I'm like, go back and watch the Bork hearings. It was like a constitutional seminar. I mean, it was right. it was tough. It was tough, but they were asking questions on substance of him. There were no right. there was none of this preening and pandering and culture war red meat. Not, not a word about pedophilia. Right. Or any of the you know, what faith are you or any of that kind of right. shit that we saw. They were right. Democrats that disagreed with him and they asked him to answer hard questions about his constitutional views. That's what yep. they did. And I think it's anyway, I could go on. I agree. You know, whatever comes of Joe Biden's first term in office, whether he's reelected, not reelected, whatever, that this is one of these things that will be written about. He will get praise for it. He will deserve praise for having done this. I think that's true. And I think also Ukraine has caused a lot of Americans who were uncertain to now see what the difference is between democracies and dictatorships. Infamously, as you well remember, Donald Trump, just before the Super Bowl, just after he became president, 2017, was asked by Bill O'Reilly, of all people, you know, why are you so close to Putin? Putin's a killer. And Trump replies, you think we Americans are not killers? You know, we've got bad people and we do bad things too. Trump's whole effort was to erase the distinction. I think now Americans may value democracy again more than we did even two months ago because they've seen what people in Ukraine were willing to sacrifice in order to keep it. So if Joe Biden is the one who's standing up those who are saying, Let's break American elections. Let's let people who lost, let's claim they won and put them in office. You know, that's where we were a couple of months ago. Maybe now Americans will say elections are the backbone of democracy. We have to save them. We have to make sure that elections cannot be manipulated by corrupt secretaries of state or state party leaders. And we've got to be tougher about this. I think that in 2020, Joe Biden, because he prevented Donald Trump from being president again, saved American democracy. And I don't usually use language like that, especially in real time. He or whoever runs the Democratic nominee in 2024 may have to do it again. And it may also be at stake this fall. And if the Democrats say 
This is an election not over inflation, but over whether your children live in a democracy or an autocracy. That's really what the stakes are. I mean, it tells you something about how, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto things are, to hear you, and I've heard you on television, you know, say things that I'm sure you thought were unimaginable sure. in all of your, even a lot of TV over the years, the kinds of things you've been saying, you know, the outrage you've expressed, I'm, again, I'm right there with you, I'm not being at all critical, you know, the outrage you've expressed, the stakes, the, the speaking in these kind of apocalyptic terms that are not usually your metier, let's put it that way. Well, you and I love democracy, and for most of our lifetimes, would we have ever in a million years thought we would be in a situation like this when basic building blocks of democracy like presidential elections and state elections and, you know, leaders telling Americans the truth and, you know, journalists making sure that Americans saw things as they really were and not as some political party you and I, I think I can speak for both of us, Sure. never thought we would be living through a time like this. And if you and I had been talking 10 years ago when someone had said, democracy is going to be in danger, are we going to keep on tiptoeing around and saying, you know, these are normal times? They're not. The country is in danger. Basic democratic principles, and I think you or I would have said 10 years ago, if we were put in a position like that, of course we would speak out against it. So here's the question. So literally on the day that KBJ gets confirmed to the United States Supreme Court, historic day. Mitch McConnell mm. goes and does an I interview. The same connection. Goes and does an interview with Jonathan Swan, where Jonathan Swan from Axios raises the natural question, says, hey, you know, what if there's another Supreme Court vacancy next year, 2023? And he asks McConnell, he says, you know, you blocked Merrick Garland on the argument that it was an election year and right. we had to let the voters decide. Here's what McConnell says to Jonathan Swan in this interview, when he's posed this hypothetical, 2023, new Supreme Court vacancy, Biden moves to fill it. Will you give this person a hearing, says Swan? Most hypotheticals I don't answer. And I think that whole question puts the cart before the horse. I'll be interested in working with the president when he's willing to be a moderate. But with regard to personnel and the other things that we're involved in, I'm not going to signal how we're going to approach it. Respectfully, it's a big deal that you won't answer this question because, you you know, in 2016, you made what you called a principled argument for not uh, holding hearings on President Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. The argument you made was it was an election year and we should give the voters an opportunity to weigh in and let the next president select it. Are you suggesting that you are developing an argument for not holding hearings on a Supreme Court nominee if it's not an election year? I'm suggesting that I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> I don't find that funny. Some people laughed. No. I find it chilling. I it find is it completely ch- chilling. Chilling. It's chilling. So Mitch McConnell, who in 2016 yeah. prevented Merrick Garland from even having a hearing because he thought it was too close to a presidential election, and then in 2020... What is now Justice Barrett is nominated, what, three weeks before the presidential election (laughs) of 2020? Oh, since it's Barrett now, that was perfectly fine to rush her through, despite a definite precedent when Abraham Lincoln refused to do that in 1864. And so now he's essentially suggesting, you know, I may just refuse to have confirmation hearings for any justice who was appointed by a Democratic president if we Republicans are in charge. 
One other thing, John, he has said in recent weeks, as you well know, he's been asked, what would the Republican Congress do when they come in if they're elected in the fall of 2022? And he said, you know, ask me after the election. Whatever you and I might think of 1994, Newt Gingrich and the contract with America, he did issue the contract with America and say, put us in office and this is what we'll do. You may disagree with what he said, but that is extremely American to say, you know, you should know what I will do in office before you vote on me. Mitch McConnell is turning that basic American principle upside down. So the other thing that he got asked that interview, Swan says to him, you said Donald Trump's actions preceding the January 6th insurrection were a, quote, disgraceful dereliction of duty and that he was practically and morally responsible. How do you go from saying that to two weeks later saying you'd absolutely support Donald Trump if he's the Republican nominee in 2024? Well, as a Republican leader of the Senate, it should not be a front page headline that I will support the Republican nominee for president. After you've said that about him, I think it's astonishing. I I think I have an obligation to support the the nominee of of my party. If you line up what McConnell has said about Trump and what you and I know he privately thinks about Trump, he he and Liz Cheney are in the same place. They both understand what a threat Trump poses. I believe it's true. And yet when Jonathan Swan asks him, like, will you support Donald Trump? He's the Republican nominee. McConnell says, of course I will. No one should be surprised that I would support the nominee of my party. What do you make of that? I am glad that McConnell was not in his current position at the time of Joe McCarthy in 1954, at the time of Richard Nixon and Watergate in 1974. Leadership is sometimes trying to educate your voters, Republican voters in this case, and say, you know, you may like Donald Trump, but this is a guy who tried to stage a coup d'etat to bring down democracy on the 6th of January. We might be living in a dictatorship as a result of that. You know, I would say that's disqualifying. He should too. You know, the one six committee is, you know, we spent a lot of last year. Are they moving fast enough? Are they really going to go after Trump? Now it's like, you know, they've made a lot of headway. It's pretty clear. And it's also pretty clear they have, at least Liz Cheney does, Donald Trump in her sights. Like we have a federal judge saying that he's committed crimes. They have a lot of pressure on the DOJ to indict him or at least investigate him, which we're not seeing right now. Right. But the thing that's on the horizon is the hearings. And this is yes. where the committee is going to go on television for days, a couple of weeks, maybe two or three weeks. And they're talking about doing it in primetime on TV, on network television. We haven't seen that in a long time. And that's going to be a big moment, right? Tell me what you think the stakes of that moment are when the committee can come forward and say, this is what we now know about what happened in the run up to January 6th, on January 6th, who's responsible, who did what, and Donald Trump's right in the middle of it, which is just clear from what we already know from investigation. What are the stakes in that involved in going to the public that way and telling that story? Well, if this were the political culture of 1974, it would be extremely important. You know, Watergate hearings took place. 73, 74, Americans saw that Nixon had obstructed justice on the tapes. And, you know, almost instantly, most Americans thought he should leave office or be impeached and convicted. We've got a little thing right now in 2022 called Fox News and several other news organizations that presumably are going to say, you know, whatever Donald Trump has been accused of, it's not that serious and everyone else does it. And it's the Democrats' fault anyway. And what we've seen in recent years is that there are an awful lot of Americans who are influenced by that. If 
Fox News and several of these other organizations existed in 1974, I think there's a reasonable chance that Richard Nixon would not have been forced to resign and might not have been convicted if it had gone to a Senate trial. Yeah. We're living in a different age. And that's why it is so important that someone like Mitch McConnell, who really knows better, just as you're saying, he knows that Trump did a horrible thing that no president should ever be allowed to do. If someone like Mitch McConnell, who's not up for re-election in, what, next four years? Yeah. He doesn't have to worry about an election in the near future. If he is not putting himself out, if he's not the one to stand up and say to voters, you know, hear me out. This is an important thing that Trump did wrong. I like his policies, but this is a bad person. If he's not doing it, who will? I do not understand how you can say, as McConnell said, that Trump was responsible for a, quote, disgraceful dereliction of duty right. and was, quote, practically and morally responsible for a riot at the U.S. Capitol where people died right. and, and then say, I'll support him if he's the nominee of my party. I don't even, I just don't get I mean, Donald it's so Trump it's so almost took our democracy away. He could have declared martial law. Members of Congress could have been executed that day. There could have been a hostage crisis. We came so close. Yeah. And if Americans lived through this and saw this and do not disqualify someone responsible, then we've got even deeper problems with our democracy. You just made the point the country has changed and we're not in Nixon land anymore. I mean, part of the thing right. that we think about is that those hearings moved the country, right? Yes. The country was riveted. They watched and they moved. But they all had to watch one of three networks that... Right you know, did not try to explain this away. But here's one of my questions is that even if you had the old days of the more homogenized, uh, we didn't have this complicated information ecosystem we lived in. Even if you've made every America, even if the numbers were like the finale of Cheers or the finale of the Cosby <laughs> show and everybody watched it all night long. Mass. I guess my question, yes, my question is, Michael, whether even if we could get them all to watch it and they were all watching a fair, not a Fox Newsified, not a Newsmaxified, not a right wing propaganda version of it. If they all watched it, is the country now just so polarized and so divided that no matter how compelling the story is, it's not gonna be able to move public opinion in the way that it moved public opinion back in 1974. Sad to say there are millions of Americans and tens of millions of Americans who will not listen and will not care. If you and I 15 years ago had talked hypothetically and we had been told that an American president who lost an election would lie and claim he won, would inspire people to march on the Capitol with weapons that could kill people, that the life of his vice president might be endangered. There would be talk about martial law. Yeah. There was a possibility of a coup d'etat. I think you and I would not have been so wild 15 years ago to say that no president like that, you know, not only would he not be considered for another campaign for election, but that person might very well be put in jail. The country has changed and not in a good direction. So Michael, uh, the last thing, the last piece of sound I want to play to talk about just how much the country and our politics have changed is a little clip from Saturday Night Live, because ultimately there is no statement of a man's power, influence, and status in the pop cultural universe than to be imitated in an SNL cold open. And so this is, this is how you know you become TV's favorite historian, TV's own Michael Beschloss. So here is, quote, Michael Beschloss, the invitation, played by Chris Catan on February 14th, 1998, right in the middle of the Lewinsky scandal and Bill Clinton on the way to getting impeached. This is all about the Lewinsky scandal. That's what this clip is about. First, we're going to hear Ted Koppel, played by Daryl Hammond, the one and only, introduce you, Michael, so to speak. And then we will hear Chris Catan, as I said, playing Michael Beschloss, delivering the punchline. So here we go. Let's go. 
Well, Miss Lewinsky continues with what appears to be a rather graphic description of a sexual encounter involving herself, the president, and Washington power broker Vernon Jordan. We're going to cut away from her speech for a few moments. With us tonight via satellite, presidential historian Michael Beschloss. Mr. Beschloss, Miss Lewinsky's speech tonight, helping the president or hurting him? Hurting him, Ted. There it is. That's that's the kind of incisive political commentary for which Michael Bachelors is justly yes, famous. Yes, thanks. Yes, yeah. really, man of few words. Fortunately, especially because that was a time when you remember Clinton went before. Con I mean, Monica did not give a speech to Congress, but no, Clinton did, no, yeah. and people said that the result would be that Clinton's numbers would go on, down, and they yeah. actually went way up. And the, the part you didn't have in that segment was the other guest, not me, said, "I do not understand this country." Yes. Uh, I wish that person would come back to 2022 and tell us what he thinks now. The reason I played it was I needed to end on a high note and just uh, to pay homage to your pop culture ubiquity. But thank you. But it is also it's funny, man. You think back to those days that like that, like semen stained blue dress and, you know, did Bill Clinton? I mean, again, I don't want to make, make light of Bill Clinton, you know, did not treat Monica Lewinsky well. I, I'm not I'm excusing it terribly. I mean, there's lots to say about and it. I, and I'm so glad to see her rebound. In yes, me too. She's incredibly attractive, yes. a, a compelling person. speaker, lovely person, fabulous in every way. You know, and things got even more trivial in the couple of years after that. Pre 9 11, you know, we had these discussions of Gary Condit and right. all of these. It was like the dominant right themes before. of our pod. So. Our politics were so small and we did yep. not know. And I got to say right now, I interviewed Masha Gessen from The New Yorker on the circus, and she said that she had grown up thinking about her parents in Russia who had lived through horrible shit in the, during the Soviet Union. Right. And she said that she always kind of romanticized it because she felt like they were living in history. Then she said, I now feel like I'm living in history and I don't want to be living in history. I would much rather be living not in history again. When I think back to 98, 99, 2000, it's like, oh, that was really, that's a politics really trivial then. I kind of miss it. I don't need democracy to be on the line and, and nuclear war to be on the table and genocide to be happening in Ukraine to, to be interested. I, I think we could like turn down the stakes a little bit here and be a little bit happier, don't you think? Would be nice, but it's just, you know, it's not <laughs> human life. It's the way things are. You remember the book that was written by an historian who made nameless out of politeness today called The End of History came out at the beginning of the 90s as the Soviet Union was dying and the Cold War was ending. And the premise was, don't need to worry about the Russians anymore, despite 900 years of Russian autocracy and expansion and violence and brutality. How does that look 30 years later? It put Americans off their guard. Sometimes we have to remember history and there's never a vacation. Kids, uh, let me tell you, one of the things you, if you're if not, if you've never written a book before, never put the words, the end of anything right. in a right. subtitle or uh, definitely not in a title. The end right. of history, Francis Fukuyama still, I mean, that's all books, books sold a lot of copies. I didn't it. mention the name. I did. I did. <laughs> uh, you have to be nice to your fellow historians. I say Francis Fuku Fukuyama, and that, you know, interesting book, but man, the end of history. Ha ha ha. Right. You know? So sorry. And he's apologized since then. I know. You leave a lot of hostages to fortune when you start calling the end of something, you know, the end, of, the end of the Yankee dynasty. Oh, no, they win the World Series the next year. Yes. Michael Bachelors, you're a great man. It's great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Really, like, I could talk to you all night. Same here. Completely loved it. Thank you, John. Keep on doing what you're doing. 
Hell on High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Michael Beschloss for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell on High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell on High Water. Pierre Benhamé engineered the podcast. Justin Chernel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And the inimitable, the inarguable, the indefatigable Marshall Eisen is our executive producer. Thank you.